Hey folks, and welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. On this show, over the past few years, we've addressed health disparities of all sorts, and it's clear, to me at least, but I know many of you as well, that disparities often tell us more about health in our state than do total outcomes. On this episode, we turn back not only to health disparities, but to specific needs and challenges experienced within Ohio's Asian American and Pacific Islander community, which we've addressed on past episodes specifically within the context of COVID-19, but not in more general ways. Today, I talk with Sharon Kim and Rebecca Nelson from the organization OPAL, Building AAPI Feminist Leadership, which has its ear to the ground across our state and is doing some great work to build community amongst Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in Ohio. As we approach the one-year anniversary of the Atlanta spa shootings, which sent shockwaves throughout the AAPI community, I talk with Sharon and Rebecca about alarming increases in anti-Asian bias, discrimination, and violence, as well as policies and initiatives to reduce such incidents. I encourage you to check out Rebecca and Sharon's full bios at prognosisohio.com. I learned a lot from them, and I know you're going to as well. Before jumping into our discussion, just a reminder to check out our show notes and past episodes at prognosisohio.com, including the ones that we reference in our conversation. And while you're there, please consider throwing us a few bucks through our Patreon site so we can keep making episodes like the one you're about to hear. Over the coming months, I'm going to be on a quest to try and cover the out-of-pocket costs I have to keep this show running, so anything you can do would be greatly appreciated. A really easy and free, I might add, way you can support the show is by sharing this episode with others and giving us all the stars you can on your podcast app. You can do that right now. This helps others to find out about the show. And finally, while I am the host, we really do want you to think about this show as yours. So please tell us what issues we should be discussing and who we should have on the show. We take these recommendations seriously. Okay, now to my conversation with Sharon Kim and Rebecca Nelson from OPAL, Building AAPI Feminist Leadership. Hey, Rebecca and Sharon, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing a little bit of the work that you do. Thank you, Dan. We're really happy to be here today. Yes, I also want to add in my thanks. This is an important topic for us all to learn and hear about. Well, one of the joys of doing this show, as I was mentioning to you before we started recording, is I get to learn about organizations that are doing great work in the community. And um, I've heard of your organization, but I really got to do a deep dive. So this is really exciting for me too, and I'm sure listeners are going to enjoy it as well. I, w- I want to start, you know, I was thinking about what to talk about today. There's so much going on in the world. It's such an intense time in so many ways. People often have short memories, and we're talking at a time when Americans' focus has again shifted now to this war in Europe. Um, but it's important that the news cycle doesn't knock other important issues off the map. And this is something I think a lot of organizations struggle with is how to, how to keep the conversation going in a, in a, a world of turmoil. Uh, we've had a sharp uptick in violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders since 2016. And that's when OPAL was uh, founded. Um, and anti-discrimination, physical attacks have been persistent throughout the pandemic as well. So we're approaching this one-year anniversary of these tragic uh, anti-Asian-fueled shootings um, of eight women, mostly of Asian descent in Atlanta. Uh, and I also note that OPOL is a, an explicitly feminist organization. I think that's something that's really important to talk about. So it's Women's History Month, and I, that's one of the reasons why I mentioned that. 
So I, I guess I want to start with the big question just to kind of get our, our, our feet wet here, which is what are some of the root causes of the, the concerns that drive what your organization does of uh, anti-Asian hate and race-based violence? Well, you know, I was actually scrolling through my Facebook feed this morning and a memory popped up. Five years ago today was the first Opal group gathering. So I mentioned that because for years, Asians have lived in this state. You, the Ohio History Connection uh, last year did a brief uh, on me, their on media sites a blurb about the history of Asians in this state. And you can see that there have been immigrants and workers in this state for years. But what is the trajectory, right, of things that have happened recently? Uh, bias and discrimination and violence against Asians have been going on for a long time. But the issue is the recent high-profile events that have happened in our coastal cities in Atlanta have risen it on, have got, gotten it on our attention in a national way, but it still fades very quickly from the national consciousness. Yeah. Um, so when Opal was first founded, uh, there was a discussion among a few women about how there wasn't an organization that looked at Asian women and femme issues from a progressive point of view. There were many organizations based on your national point of origin, or if you are a small business owner, etc., right? There were those types of organizations in the state, but there wasn't anything for women who really had a strong sense of the need to elevate progressive issues, mm -hmm. immigration, reproductive justice, LGBTQ, mental health. And a lot of these issues cut across many groups, but there wasn't a place that all of those arose on the platform, right? So um, I guess almost six years ago was when the planning started, but the yeah. first uh, in-person group meeting was today, five years ago. And we watched Grace Lee Boggs, an American revolutionary, and she's a Midwest treasure, right? And But she's not taught about in schools. I've never heard of her. Oh, so my gosh. Yes. I've never heard of her. So, yes. so, so tell me, teach me. Yes. Well, she was a scholar and a community activist who lived in Detroit. Her husband was African-American. She was very involved in the people's movement, uh, wrote several books, and it's a travesty that yeah. our children and adults are not taught about who she is. And she's one of many people throughout history. But this group that gathered five years ago was hungry for sisterhood, for alignment with bringing together the group to talk about things that were important to us. There were women who came who had never talked about these issues within their circles, within their family or within their friends, etc. So there was a need for a space for people to be seen, to be heard, to speak their truth, and to know that there's something you can do together as a group. And I'm going to bump it over to Sharon for some of her thoughts, because she wasn't there at the beginning, but she is a primary force with the group now. Rebecca's correct. I joined Opal in 2020. Um, I grew up outside of Cleveland. Um, I actually came to Columbus for my undergraduate degree and stayed here uh, for a while. And my family and I, we moved um, to New York and we decided to move back to Ohio after we had our two kids. Opal 
is incredibly special for all the reasons that Rebecca mentioned. Um, I think for me, it was really impressive to see kind of the trajectory and the evolution of where the um, group came from. As Rebecca mentioned, when the group started, you know, five, six years ago, it really was about building a community space, building a space specifically for Asian American women and femmes to be able to be together. And by the time I joined um, in 2020, which was shortly after the pandemic started, you know, there really seemed to be more of a movement towards being visible, towards being loud in terms of what we were seeing already happening at the beginning of the pandemic, which is the scapegoating, um, which was this really horribly racist rhetoric that was happening from our elected officials and other people in power. And we really, in the Asian American community, in the Asian community in this country, we really were feeling the effects early on. And Opal was one of the groups that really made it a point to speak out and publicize the already the animus that we were experiencing and also warning about what could happen in the future. Opal actually created a letter, a public letter that was sent to Governor DeWine and all the elected officials. And we had, you know, over 1,200 individuals sign and, you know, numerous organizations in the state as well to support this um, warning, basically, from the Asian American women in this group, um, but also the list of asks that we had in terms of making sure that there was awareness of what was happening and that there was also community-based and community-centered solutions to prevent any increase in violence, any of the you know, unfortunately, the horrible things that we've seen happen over these now, you know, three going on three years of this pandemic, because the things that we've been requesting for that we've been asking for that we've been talking about over and over and over again, they just really haven't been done. I just want to add on to that, that I think part of the issue is where do Asians and Asian Americans fit in the conversation around race in life? in politics, in state, you know. I've moved here in 1986. So I've lived in Ohio since 1986. And I have always felt um, on the fringes of these Mm. discussions around who we are, who I am, as part of the race discussion. Clearly, the way people treat me, they take into account my perceived race, right? I've, I've encountered that time and time again. And anybody will tell you from the random person who yells ni hao at you from their car or whatever, or to somebody throwing a beer can at you when I was mm. on campus at OSU, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, that, so we know we're part of the race dynamic and we were part of the race conversation. But there seems to be a lack of understanding sometimes within our own communities, but more perilously external to our communities, right? So that is why issues like what is taught and what is not taught in our school system is super important. And I worked in public health 
for the first two years of the pandemic before I retired last year. And I do feel that there's uh, there needs to be more of a focus of who are our communities living in the state right now. Sometimes I do feel like we think about who we were 20 years ago when we think about the demographics of the state. The state of Ohio, most specifically shown by the recent census, has dramatically shifted our demographics. And let me pause there. Yeah, I mean, I also want to add, I mean, I was late to the letter uh, in my getting up to speed to really learn about your organization. I came across it. I signed the letter. I don't know if it's too late, but my name went through Great. and we'll be linking to it for for folks uh, on our show notes. But I do have to ask. So you wrote this letter to Governor DeWine trying to call attention to these issues. And you also copied the state legislature or addressed it to them. Did you get a response? Uh, was Was there any response? Uh, I guess in a word, no. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, we really haven't seen anything in terms of the uh, solutions that we put forth to Governor DeWine and our legislators. I mean, we had a number of our Democratic Ohio legislators sign on, so they they showed their support. But um, you know, if if you look at what the people who are most affected by this anti-Asian violence and harassment want, it is all pointing to solutions that are not carceral. So, you know, people aren't asking for increases to policing. They're not, you know, they're not asking for that. They're asking for things like more education and public awareness. They're looking for uh, civil rights enforcement. They're looking for culturally competent and in-language services for community members. Um, Stop API Hate, which has been actually collecting respondent data, you know, of people who have had these um, anti-Asian racist interactions, uh, they asked the people who submitted this data, what is it that you think are the top solutions to addressing anti-API hate? And the top three solutions were all community-based solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that Opal really did that um, was part of one of the requests for um you know, addressing this issue was during the Ohio budgetary season was to really push for having an API statewide commission established. This was actually something that had previously been in place in a different iteration. And Rebecca was actually um, involved with that. And it was completely volunteer led. There was no funding associated. And it just kind of just kind of ended. And part of uh Governor DeWine's campaign promises when he was running for re-election. And I want to say also Lieutenant Governor Houston, because there was an API um, lobbying day. And one of the things that was brought up was, well, what about this Ohio API commission? Is this going to be reestablished? What's going to happen? And the community was told that it would happen. But it never it never happened. So Opal was pushing really hard to have this as a line item within uh, the state budget. We met with a lot of legislators. Um, we had some verbal commitments to it happening. But when it came time, nothing happened. Um, and it is incredibly frustrating because 
one of the things that really makes it difficult to have any sort of impact in terms of knowing what our API community in Ohio needs and how to get people connected to those services is that we don't have any sort of centralized group at the statewide level to be able to coordinate all of these different resources that are kind of just doing what they can with very little resources um, to help consolidate that information and get Ohio APIs connected to those resources. I'm guessing that some states have those kinds of bodies then that you could model such a thing on. Well, there's the New African Immigrant Commission and there's the Latino Commission in the state of Ohio, but other states do have Asian American commissions and councils, and all of those have been looked at. Uh, I want to say that what existed in the past was not a commission. It was a committee or council level, mm-hmm. right? So it was very loose. It was uh, it was staffed for years, not even staffed, just organized by volunteers, uh, but and and a, a office was given that we shared with the New African Commission, yeah. uh, but uh, we've never been able to achieve that status. Yeah. And uh, I think that goes to show um, we're ghosts in the system. You know, it feels like that so often. Uh, and I think with this last round of what happened, you know, your budget is your moral compass. Your budget is your moral compass. What you spend money on and what you give priority to says this is what has value to us as people, to us as a state. And for not one dollar to be allocated during the last process, after all the the quantitative, because so often this data is qualitative. It's things that people are telling us. It doesn't get elevated to like a quantitative level that got captured in a specific way. Uh, but after all the national charges, all of the things that groups were doing across states, we thought for sure this time around there'd be some movement. Nothing, nothing, right? So I think that there's, um, I think that there, our community is quite resilient. We wouldn't have been here for years without that. I have to say that. But I also have to say there was some despair. Yeah. Well, we've talked on this show about the fact that, you know, pointing to resilience within communities is a double-edged sword, right? I mean, you know, communities shouldn't have to be as resilient as they are in a state with so many resources. Mm -hmm. And, And one of the goals is to, in fact, make it easier to not have to steal oneself again, failed systems to become resilient. And I, every time I hear resilience or moxie or, uh, you know, grit, this group, grit. This, yeah, <laughs> grit. You know, I, I all I hear is failed policy. Um, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. So, Asian Americans face health disparities in cancer, chronic diseases such as heart disease, hypertension, and diabetes, mental health, um, and uh, there's a particular concentration among the elderly. I was looking at some of the data before talking with you today. Um, and it's my understanding that, that Asian Americans are also the only U.S. population suffering cancer as the leading cause of death. And we've talked a lot through the COVID pandemic about the ways in which existing, already existing health disparities kind of got knocked off the map for the better part of two years. This episode will be coming out almost exactly the week or exactly the week when COVID uh, became the thing that we now know it was going to become. Uh, we've talked on this show about some of the specific effects of covid 
Um, we talked with uh, Senator Tina Maharath, for example, uh, about her harrowing story and some of the the ways in which um, you know, COVID has really ripped through um, the Asian American community, in particular, but just specific communities that that's, uh, face disparities in general. I, I wonder if you could give us a snapshot of where you think. I know you know Opal is not specifically a health focused organization. You're doing lots of things. But health is at the center in so many ways of the work you're doing. Uh, wh- where are we now, two years out of the pandemic? Do you think that the work you're doing has called attention to some of these disparities? Are we gaining ground or are we kind of trying to catch up still because we've lost so much over the last two years? I think it has definitely brought attention, but more in other cities and other states, New York, Los Angeles, Atlanta, because of the harsh alignment with other incidents that have occurred. Mm -hmm. As Sharon brought up earlier, we are a state that does not require the collection of disaggregated data. We are not a state that requires the collection of disaggregated data. And the best practice of health outreach means you need to know specificity Mm -hmm. about communities and what their needs are. And we have 50 plus languages alone in our communities. When we have, I, I immigrated here because of school. I came as a refugee and everywhere in between all these different stories and national origins. So if we don't know the specificity about communities, how can we know how to tailor our outreach and our interventions specifically? That is a huge policy issue in this state. And when you look at the national cancer data around Asian Americans, Professor Moon Chen, who used to be at OSU, he's now out in California, I think at UC Davis, I can't remember, one of the UC schools. But the data he was able to gather and mobilize there because they do disaggregated data collection was yeah. there was no comparison, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the conspiracist in me says, well, this is not a lack of disaggregated data. Uh, this is a probably at some level a strategy to not know. I mean, is yeah. that going too far? Am I sounding like I'm, uh, you know, tinfoil hats and and conspiracy? I don't know if it's a lack of wanting to know. I think it might just be, again, this idea that all API are the same. That is, I think, a common misconception that, you know, many in the public hold. Um, And unfortunately, that affects the kinds of things that our communities have access to. And as Rebecca is saying, how our data is collected and presented. Um, I also wanted to just point out that something not just specifically for APIs, but also just all BIPOC people in general, um, that, you know, racism really is a public health issue. It affects all BIPOC folks in different ways, but it is a known public health issue. The American Psychological Association last year, they issued an apology um, specifically for harms caused by historical racism. They're acknowledging, you know, how deeply that has affected how they've operated and the harm that that's caused. The city of Columbus and Franklin County both have declared racism as a public health issue. Um, This is something that is a known issue, right? So the question is, how 
How is that addressed specifically for our AAPI communities? The way you've been talking about AAPI folks, you know, and Rebecca, you said you're a ghost, right? I mean, the way in which AAPI folks cut in and out are included or excluded. And I, I kind of wonder, you know, all these declarations of racism as a public health crisis. We had, we had one here in Grandview where I live and they declared racism to be a public health crisis and then did nothing, right? I mean, it, it, there were a lot of symbolic uh, gestures from bodies around the state. And, you know, there is good stuff happening in some places. But I wonder, you know, if you asked folks about these declarations of racism as a public health crisis, if they would actually consider that AAPI folks were what they had in mind, if they were even thinking of that at that time, because of the way the racial politics uh, gets gets shaped. Do you think I have that right? Do you, do you suspect that I might be right about that? Well, I've lived that. I think it's absolutely true. I think we're an afterthought in many mm-hmm. ways, right? You know, I retired after 33 years of working in a variety of arenas. And I can't tell you the number of times I was told, now remember, you're, you weren't appointed because you're Asian. They wanted me to not speak on that, you yeah. know? But I am. And it's part of who I am, and I'm part of the community, right? So I will just say without naming names that that has come up throughout my career uh, in different leadership roles, et cetera. It's, it's very, I think that there's misconceptions, but maybe it's partly not wanting to know, as you've said too, but there's definitely a lot of misconceptions. I want to give the benefit of the doubt. If you really knew my people's history, if you really knew my people's issues and needs and concerns, how could you not put that on the table? That's, that's, I guess that's the attack uh, that, I, that I choose to take, but there's definitely been times where you pause and you wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was really impressed looking at your website too. I know one of the things that Opal, and by the way, I have to apologize. I'm a Long Islander. So when I say Opal, it brings out the Long Island in me. <laughs> okay. I, I really start pushing that, that sound. Uh, so that's been an exploration for me, a journey. Um, but storytelling is a big part of what you are doing and hope to continue to do. And and we are realizing the power of storytelling in being able to rework how history gets written so we can understand that, you know, folks like you or, you know, a- Asian Americans have been here forever. But the way the story got structured and the way the focus got made didn't always capture those folks. I know I know I, I teach at a medical school. And there are questions around who who is a minority student, who is an underrepresented uh, student. And as you know, Asians and AAPI folks uh, more generally float in and out of these conversations, are kind of used sometimes and then excluded other times from that. And I, I think it really shows that we frankly haven't understood the history of who these folks are within our communities. I I absolutely agree. And the issue with education is the use of the term underrepresented. And I want to say, first of all, I am pro providing all the support for underrepresented students. But that is what gets in the way with digging out the issues for Asians and Asian Americans. Uh, There's actually been the term overrepresented. You know, your people are overrepresented in certain fields. That is true. You know, I'm not going to disclaim that, right? Whatever you mean by overrepresented, we're not below the bar in terms of numbers in some majors, in some fields, et cetera. But 
our people still have health disparities, still face bias and discrimination and violence. Those things are all part of the fabric. It it, it can't be a zero-sum game is what I'm saying. It can't be that you meet every criteria in order to be an honorary, valid, seen minority, right? That you can have any number of these things be part of your experience and your history, and it can still be a very valid issue to put forward. So Sharon, I wonder if I can ask you, you know, you talked before about your progressive values and how an organization like Opal didn't really exist that represent you know before before Opal came into existence to really acknowledge the, the the importance of progressive values within the AAPI community. Opal is an extremely inclusive organization as I mentioned. I mean, you um, you're explicit in your inclusion, not only in your feminist commitments, but your inclusion of LGBTQI plus folks, the needs of queer and trans folks. And also you talk about disability very directly and the importance. So there's a lot going on and the intersectionality of the organization is really impressive. I wonder if you can talk about the importance of not just the AAPI identity as it's been traditionally understood, but all the intersections that are going on and how you're trying to leverage, you know, the different identity structures within there to do the work you do. Sure. Um, Well, as Rebecca mentioned, you know, the purpose of Opal really was to create a space and really a home for AAPI folks in Ohio, women and femmes who did not have connections to or didn't see other folks who look like them. I think specifically for Ohio and specifically for Asian American and Pacific Islander folks in Ohio, having a space where you can gather with others who not only look like you, have similar experiences as you, but also share those progressive values is something that is very unique. It's something that, you know, I found and was involved in very easily when I lived in New York City. But in the Midwest, having these progressive political homes for APIs, it hasn't really been present. Part of what Opal does, you know, even more importantly than I feel, you know, like the legislative advocacy that we're doing is really based on creating and growing these relationships within our membership. Um, You mentioned our storytelling. Um, We definitely have members who have shared their personal experiences. Um, One of our campaigns, the Love Has No Borders campaign, we spoke to some of our members and other community members outside of Opal about their immigration experiences because we really wanted to have these voices be out there in the general narrative about what immigration looks like. Because people have these preconceived ideas of, you know, what an undocumented person looks like, or what does the experience of legal, quote unquote, legal immigration look like and how that is experienced. But they don't actually know the personal stories and the impacts to these families that actually occur during these processes. I will confess to being a city-minded person. I I have lived in either suburbs or cities my entire life, um, and that's where I feel most at home. But in Ohio, you know, health disparities, Ohio, like many states, health disparities exist between rural and urban populations, and um, the the urban-rural divide is is a really important problem. I wonder if that is also part of your intersectionality, if, if you're thinking 
about how to reach API folks who aren't in Ohio's urban centers. And if you're either, if you've been able to do that or been successful at that, or if that's something that you've given thought to as you grow the organization. I think when you look at the census data, the overwhelming majority of Asians living in the state live in urban areas, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't mean that we don't have, uh, like in uh, some of the counties around larger urban centers, but I will say one bonus with having to go to all virtual events over the last two years has pulled in people who might not have been able to come for the in-person support right, which was the key of how Opal started, was in person. But I think that that is a dynamic that's shared across many groups that are seeking community right now. That is one of the plus sizes that came out of everybody going to virtual platforms, right? But then that brings up the issue of digital divide and those kinds of things, who has access to that kind of technology, et cetera. It's, It's getting far more common, but it's still not as accessible as we would all like to believe it is across the state. Yeah. But um, I did want to pull out one other thing as Sharon was talking about um, why is this important. The The other piece is the there are generational issues to consider as well. I'm in my late 50s. I'm part of the cusp of an earlier you know, generation who was working and doing these things in the state. It's really our younger generations who are pushing a lot of the key conversations right now. And one of the things that Opal has done recently to uh, strategize around what is its meaning for its members is the rollout of caucuses. And I, I don't, I'm not a fan of that term. I don't think that resonates with everybody. I know. Well, we have caucuses, committees, councils. Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> but the point is their home basis is what I would like to call it for groups. So there's, if you live in a certain city and you want to have a group that meets, if you have a certain ethnic uh, enclave that you want to gather, like if you want to have all Filipinas gather, you know, there's a caucus for that. I'm in the caucus for the multi-generational network which is a group for seasoned women, I guess we will say. Uh, But we also want to engage with other ages and groups as well. But the issue is, uh, what is important is first learning who you are, your meaning for yourself. So if you were never taught your history, I know I keep coming back to that, but that is just a constant thing, like the Grace Lee Boggs. It's so surprising how many people within our own community have no idea who she is. Well, this will also be a great Prognosis Ohio moment of shame for me. No, so I'm no, gonna, no. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay my dues by doing some reading too. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate yeah. that. But the other issue is who are we in relation to other groups as well? And I want to add on to what Sharon said, what is important about Opal is that Opal from the beginning has been in relationship with many other communities beyond Asian right? Yeah. that That's important as well. And I did not see that a whole lot in my early days of being uh, a community organizer involved in different issues, etc. Partly, it could have been the timing of it. But that is also an important piece of what makes Opal Opal, is we're not just in community within API communities, but we're in community across other race and ethnic organizations that have progressive platforms as well. So my final question for you, I want to turn to 
health policy kind of specifically. Uh, and you, you've already raised some of these points in, in previous comments, but I want to kind of just emphasize it or punctuate it. What are some of the reforms? I mean, you talked about, you know, the lack of response to the letter, right? And trust me, I'm I'm the member of organizations that has received a lack of response from legislators and been doing this my whole life. And I'm guessing both of you have as well. This is what it means to do hard work. But, you know, so I'm guessing there might be some low hanging fruit, but also maybe some bigger ideas that you'd like to see from a policy side. I mean, maybe there are things via executive action that can take place that would be relatively or comparatively easier, or maybe some low level, but still impactful things the state legislature could do. If you were to think about it, like maybe one or two priorities where, you know, where, where you'd put your, your emphasis, what would they be? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is actually something that we're working on right now, which is trying to get a bill that was introduced by Senator Maharath, Senate Bill uh, oh my gosh, I f- I'm forgetting the number right now, but it's for... Okay, podcast listeners don't remember numbers. <laughs> That's okay. I assure you. Okay, good. So it's a bill that Senator Tina Maharath actually introduced recently, and it's for an Asian American curriculum requirement for Ohio K-12 through um, students. And, you know, in the news, you may have seen that similar laws were passed in Illinois. The TEACH Act was passed. New Jersey recently just passed uh, an Asian American curriculum requirement as well. And as Rebecca has been um, saying repeatedly throughout this interview, which I think is so, so important, um, having our history be required to be taught within our schools is something that I also agree is very foundational and important. It's just one of many different things that we can do in terms of talking about making sure that the API community within Ohio is represented accurately, that people even know that we exist and know that we've been part of this country for hundreds and hundreds of years, Um, but also for the next generation, my kids' generation, to know who they are yeah, and we've talked about that bill with Senator Maharath on the show, um, and, and I, I do, you know, it's an important bill. I do worry, as I'm sure you do as well, that it's going to get caught up in all this garbage about critical race theory and all this kind of these kind of curricular fights we have going around the state. It, it, it turns out that to tell an accurate history is fighting words yeah. increasingly in, yeah. in our society. And um, I mean, is that what you're finding as well as you have these conversations? I think the questions that we're getting are why, first of all, why Asian American history and maybe even more from educators is, you know, oh, well, this is just another requirement that we need to put on our list of things that we already need to teach about. You know, Um, the why I think is, well, aside from what we've been talking about, if you look at the Ohio Revised Code, which actually outlines what is required to be taught Asians, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders are not even named within who and what needs to be taught. We're we're in the and other populations and other ethnicities. That that is where Asians are. So that is kind of like the crux of our why. We're not even named in the requirements currently. And Rebecca, anything you want to add on the policy front? Well, I absolutely having had a child who came up through the school system in the state of Ohio, it's an enormous issue. When I was president of the Organization of Chinese Americans chapter in Columbus, we did a project with 
Columbus Metropolitan Library, where we raised money, we donated, because we discovered that the books that they had for children particularly was invisible, was missing. Yeah. There were hardly anything, right? That was back in the day, but it's still true today, right? So for those of us who've been around a while, it's frustrating to see issues continue to come up. And if you look at the last uh, voter registration data, uh, AAPI Get Out the Vote did a, did a review of the state of Ohio from 2012 to 2018, the number of eligible AAPI voters grew 39%, 39%, right? Compared with 2% growth of the overall general. There seems to be, I'm going back to something you said earlier, Dan, which is, is there a deliberate blind eye or is it just not knowing? You know, and I go back and forth because if you look at the changing demographics of our state, we are sorely behind the times at recognizing, seeing, supporting, uplifting who are living in this state, who are proud Ohioans, right? Who loved who love the state and call it home. So I want to go back to that. The other, the other simple pol- simple, I don't know, but the other policy things would be the creation of a commission or yeah. somebody that can coordinate and advocate at a level different from a ragtag group of volunteers. And I say that with love because I consider myself part of that group, right? But the other piece as well is the uh, disaggregated data. And I think that they're, after going through this pandemic, there's starting to be some discussion and knowledge because, for example, what our Bhutanese refugees experience is very different from what I, a second or third generation Chinese American, might experience, right? Yeah. So there's this growing recognition that we, and, and most services require data. You know, it's that evidence-based mantra. So that's yeah. why I always come back to the disaggregated data piece. But those pieces are huge. The other piece to link back to what we've learned through this recent health equity issues is the issue of access. So just because you have something translated in a few languages does not mean that you've done your job with reaching out to a community. Some community do not read in their language. Yeah. So one of the most powerful lessons that those of us doing public health, doing outreach work have learned is you can't just check the boxes with how things were done in the past. You need to use um, people who are known, who are trusted in the community to be the voice for their community. And you need to do more uh, social media, audio type things, right? More people going out and talking. Uh, it, it can't just be we've got this translated document in a few languages, right? So those are all things at policy levels that we can do. But of course, they all take money. And that's why I come back to something I said earlier, that how you your checkbook is your moral compass. Right. And so far, Asian and Asian American communities have been ghosts in the checkbooks for the state. Yeah. Well, you know, th- there's a lot of really good ideas in there. I mean, we'll be linking to them on the show notes and you know, hopefully people will click through and also learn more about your organization, go back and really get into some of these issues. That's why we do this show. And, um, and as you mentioned, data too. And we'll be sharing a bunch of different resources so people get a little bit of a better sense of what's going on in their community and around the state. Uh, but Rebecca and Sharon, I just want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I really enjoyed learning about Opal and, and I'm, I'm glad that I now have another organization that I know about that's doing this kind of work. And I'm, I'm guessing this is going to be the first of several conversations we'll have over some time because this work is just beginning. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. 
Many thanks to Rebecca and Sharon for joining me on the show. As always, we've got lots of links and follow-up items in our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. By the way, WCBE is going to be having a fundraiser pledge drive soon, so we encourage you to throw them a few bucks as well. All of that's under the podcast experience tab. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. We received editorial and production support from Trish Mayhorn. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Angela Lynn at Ohio Voice for helping to make this interview with Opal possible. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and check out the show's social media presence, please visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We're going to be back in your podcast feed soon with an exciting episode. I can't tell you about it quite yet, but I guarantee you you're going to be excited. Make sure you're subscribed. Thanks for listening and be well.